So sometimes it's a battle just to get to church on a Sunday morning. And often it's a battle to live out this Christian life, to actually follow Jesus on a day-to-day basis. In fact, really, this is what we've been called to. I think sometimes we can make the mistake of thinking because we know that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, because we know that we've been made free by what Jesus has done, because we know God's love for us is not conditioned by what we do or don't do. Because of these things, we can make the mistake of thinking, okay, then to be a Christian is kind of easy. It's not that difficult. That maybe this is me going on a holiday. I'm going to know Jesus and things are going to get better. Everything's going to be fine. And we forget that what, what happens when Jesus calls us to follow him, he's not inviting us to a holiday, at least not this side of heaven, as much as inviting us to a holy war. Not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against these spiritual forces, against our own flesh as well. There's a battle that goes on. There's a difficulty that happens. To follow Jesus is to be on the outside of what the world says is normal. That's always been the way. And that's why Jesus says in in Matthew chapter 10, he says, it's the one who endures to the end that shall be saved. Now, now be, be clear. Let me be clear on this. Jesus wasn't teaching that, okay, you need to believe and you need to persevere. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about, he's describing really the kind of faith he's calling us to. He's calling us to a faith that perseveres. He's calling us to this kind of commitment. And one of the things that our enemy wants to do, these principalities and powers that we wrestle with, one of the things that they want to do is they want to keep us from persevering. They want us to just quit. Just give up. It's not worth it. Don't walk anymore. These are the thoughts that whisper and, and wallow in our heads. But Jesus is calling us to perseverance. The scriptures are calling us to perseverance. There's a guarantee for us, for those who have that persevering faith, that we're saying, Lord, I'm going to get it wrong, but I'm going to keep going because I trust in your grace. I'm going to keep going because I believe that you are as good as your word says you are. I'm going to keep going. For those of us who are willing to keep going, there's a guarantee of restoration. We're going to get there. Now, what we want to see in this first part of Nehemiah 6 is really we want to see this picture of how the enemy tries to keep us from persevering. One of the reasons we get tripped up is because we forget or we're ignorant of the enemy's devices. How does the enemy work against us? How does he keep us from persevering? And so if we can recognize those things and know how we are to stand against those things, we're going to be able to persevere. So we pick it up in verse 1, and Nehemiah tells us that his old enemies, Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and he says the rest. There's a, a growing group of people against Nehemiah, uh, the people in Jerusalem who are, and the people in Jerusalem who are rebuilding the walls. And they write to him in a way that sounds like they want to reconcile. There's a kind of a tone of reconciliation. Come, let us meet together, they write in verse 2. Let's get together. 
But Nehemiah knows something's wrong here. So after he quotes what they wrote, he writes this. He says, but they thought to do me harm. Now, this is not Nehemiah being paranoid. This is Nehemiah being wise. He knows that these are the guys who threatened to, to, to harm them, have, have tried to belittle what they were doing. So when he writes, when these guys write a letter that sounds like they want to reconcile, it sounds like they want everything to be okay, he's going, mm, I'm not trusting this. The hint is in the name of the village, right? Oh, no. <laughs> Obviously, that wouldn't have anything to Nehemiah. That's a stupid English joke. You get it, right? Okay, good. It's a pastor pun. We use those occasionally thinking they're funny and nobody really laughs. Occupational hazard, I guess. But he knows that these guys are, are up to no good. He, he's aware that they just simply want to pull him away from what God wants to do. He recognizes, Nehemiah recognizes that, that their goal is to get him away from the work. Maybe to, to kidnap him and get him away permanently. Maybe just to have the work slow down. Maybe even to kill him. But he sees inherently the danger of him being separated from God's people and the work that God calls him to do. And we need to recognize this. We should be wary of anything that is pulling us away from God's people. We should be aware of this. The scripture says in the book of Proverbs, it says, this is Proverbs chapter 1, where, where, where the author writes about 3,000 years ago, he writes, My child, if sinners entice you, turn your back on them. They may say, come and join us. Let us hide and kill someone. Just for fun, let's ambush the innocent. How many of you guys heard that this week? Probably nobody, okay. <laughs> of course, Solomon, who's gathering, at least gathering these proverbs together, he's writing to a king who would say, who would, or to a future king, who would probably be told, you know what, let's go against these guys. They're a smaller, weaker nation. Let's pick on them. But you can at least understand that there are times when those who don't want to follow Jesus try to call us to do things instead of following Jesus. And even some of those things seem like good things. I think sometimes we feel the pull from our family, don't we? We can feel the pull from our family to say, you know, we got this family gig. You know, you know it's, the only time we can do it is on, on a Sunday morning. Sorry. Are you going to show up? Are you, are you really going to love your family? Aren't Christians supposed to love their family? Aren't you supposed to just kind of show up and love your family? Isn't that what Jesus would want you to do? Skip church and love your family. Come on. How come we can't do it on Saturday? Well, I got sports and a party to go to. And it's amazing how the enemy wants to use these little things, or seemingly little things, to keep us from being with God's people. This is one of his tactics, is to drag us away. We've all heard the analogies of, of the, the, the lion who hunts for the sheep or, or the, the, the wolf that hunts for the sheep, that their tactics are, the predator's tactics are often to jump into a crowd and the weak ones tend to run off out of the way and they isolate the weak so they can consume the weak. This is how the enemy works. This is how our enemy works. And, and it's more than just sort of showing up. It's more than just going, okay, fine. I'll make a priority to, make, to, to be at church on Sunday morning. It's way bigger than that. It's not about just being here. It's about being present. It's about being aware of your need to be here. That you need one another. 
that we need one another. That we can't be separated. It's not healthy for us to be separated. The author of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews chapter 3. He says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Are you sobered by that? Beware who? Brethren. That there's a potential in us as those who are, are claiming to be Jesus followers, as those who are welcomed, welcoming each other together as brothers and sisters, there's a potential in us for our hearts to walk away from the living God. And so he says this, listen. He says, but exhort one another on Sunday. Is that what he says? No, oh, daily. Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now, he doesn't say you be hardened through the sin of deceit, as in lying to each other, but the deceitfulness of sin. You know what the deceitfulness of sin is? It's this. When we choose to sin, every time we choose to sin, that sin speaks to us and says, see, it's not that big of a deal. You can get away with this. There's really no consequence for this. But that's a lie. There's a hardening that takes place in our hearts. See, the thing is, we tend to measure Sin, we tend to measure sin's effectiveness by how does it affect other people. Now, we should be concerned how our sin affects other people. But listen, just because our sin doesn't seem to be affecting other people doesn't mean it's not having a negative effect. Because it's hardening our own hearts when we do it. When we choose to do the thing God says don't do. When we choose not to do the thing that God calls us to. This is why we need each other. And this is why, listen, this is why it's so important that none of us acts like we have it all sorted out. That we're not susceptible to the same kind of hardening that the author of Hebrews is talking about. Because any of us can fall into this hardening of heart, of departing from the living God. This is one of the reasons I personally despise religion. I really, I, I seriously, if God would not have chased me down and God would hold my heart, I would have nothing to do with any kind of organized religion. It's ridiculous. Because all I've seen in organized religion, and I didn't grow up in the church, but all I've seen of it is hypocrisy. And I'm not just talking about Christianity. Whatever religion it is. People want to put on a facade. Look at me, I'm doing better than most people. That's a lie. When we look at the standard, who is Jesus? Him being the standard, we recognize, gosh, we do not love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We do not love our neighbors as ourselves. And even after we become Christians, we feel that pull to just live for self. It's a hardening of our hearts. And we need each other to say to one another, bro, sis, let's press on to Jesus. Let's go to him right now. Let's give him that care. Let's be honest about where we're at. We need one another. Always be wary of anything that's pulling you away from God's people because guess what? If you're God's people, you need God's people. That's the way it works. But also, what does he say in verse 3? Nehemiah says, so I sent messengers. He says, look, I can't go because this is why I am doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave to go see you? Pretty wise of Nehemiah that he's not saying, no, you guys are crooks. I don't trust you. He's wise. He just says, sorry, I'm, I'm busy. I got important things to do. Now, the thing is, we can look at this and we can go, yeah, Nehemiah was doing a great work. God was using him to lead his people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah could know what he was doing was actually fulfilling a very clear prophetic scripture. 
Wow. Talk about knowing you're doing a great work. But what about us? The alarm goes off, 6 o'clock. Ring. You crawl out of bed. If you're like me, you consume copious amounts of coffee. You make your way to the work site. You're greeted by people that seem to be happier than you. You do a job that you feel like you're not appreciated for or paid well enough for, and you think, what's the point? Or maybe it's not the alarm. Maybe it's the cry of a baby that wakes you up. And you go in there, and you love that child, and you rock that child, and you want to put that child to bed, and you, you, you finally comfort the child. The child goes back to sleep. You, you think, oh, thank you, God. You go back to sleep, and 45 minutes later, and as a mom who does, you're a mom, you don't want to admit this because it's, oh, Christian moms especially, we never admit this, but you think, I, I love this kid, but I don't want to throttle this kid. <laughs> What's the point? How is this a blessing, God? You come to church, you sign up for a team. Whew, I did it. Took the step, filled out that huge application. Why do I have to fill out a huge application to be an usher? But I did it. And I've committed to the team. And you show up, and someone else doesn't show up, and your workload's doubled, and you're going, church just feels like a drag. We often can be thinking that what we're doing is not great at all. And we need to learn to recognize this is one of the lies of the enemy. That I don't care how mundane the things are that you're doing, or how unfruitful they seem to be. If we are doing it, if you are doing it as unto the Lord, if you're saying, God, I want to do this to know you and to make you known, if that's your heart, if you are praying toward to have that heart and moving that direction, guess what? You can say, Nehemiah, I'm doing a great work. You can say, by faith, I'm doing a great work. <laughs> See, this is what we have, to, we have to understand. We need to be assured of the importance of God's work. And listen, Nehemiah's work was great in our eyes because we're believers and we love Scripture and we think this is great. We get to hear how God was faithful to this guy. But listen, in, in Nehemiah's day, the work was not great in the sense of the, the surrounding nations didn't think it was great. They thought it was bad. They thought it was suspicious, as we'll read. They didn't think it was a great work. And it wasn't great because Nehemiah was so satisfied in it. We get a sense from how Nehemiah prays throughout this book that this was a difficult thing to do. And I'm sure there was at times he was thinking, man, I miss being in Artaxerxes' court. It was much better to taste perfect, you know, great wine and great food so the king would be happy. It was much more flattering to have the king of the, of the known world then say to me, hey, what's your opinion about this? instead of dealing with all these squabbling people and these enemies on the outside. No, it was a great work. Listen, it was a great work because it was the work that God called Nehemiah to do. Listen, God wants you to wake up tomorrow morning with a sense that what you're doing is what God has called you to do. And I'm not just talking about, okay, I'll pray that I can be I can share Jesus with somebody at work. That's a good thing. Do that. But I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about recognizing that, that our God who has saved us is in control and he puts us where we're supposed to be. 
That he's over, he's sovereign over the family we're in, the job we're in, the neighborhood we're in. Yes, we've made choices to get there, but God says, I'm going to use that right there. I'm sovereign over that. And he wants good works to be done. No, he wants great works to be done. We've read both of these scriptures several times through Nehemiah, but they just fit. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes about our great salvation, and he says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a, it's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that you have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has, notice, created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he has planned for us long ago. What are those good things? It is where whatever good works you have, whatever responsibilities you have, doing those things by God's power for God's glory are those good things, those great works. If you're in the medical profession, you can go and know that you, God's called you in the medical profession to have a witness. That's what CMF is for, to encourage you in that. Paul also wrote this in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He says, So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Can I get you, let you in on a little secret? This is something that's really sustained me over the years doing ministry. My motivation to do ministry is not you. <laughs> Sometimes it does become you. Sometimes my motivation is you. Sometimes, and, and I'm always praying, every Sunday specifically, I'm praying, God, have mercy on your people. Use me for their sake. I don't deserve to be used, but use me for their sake. Have mercy on these people. But Lord, I'm here for you. Because if it's for them, I'm out of here. Not because you're so horrible. You're a lovely lot. But because, listen, it gets old when your focus is on people. When our focus is on the Lord, Lord, I want to do this for you. I, want to do, I, got, I need your strength to do it, and I want to do it for you. Then and only then are you able actually to love people the way God calls us to love people. That's the good work, the great work that God's called you to. He's called you to love him above all things, above all people, so that you're enabled to love others the way he loves. This is what he's doing by his Holy Spirit. This is the great work. Do you see, listen, are you assured of the importance of God's work in and through your life? Are you sure of it? In the, mon in the mundanity of it? Are you sure of it? Because we need to be, or the enemy is going to win. But also, listen, verse 4 says that this didn't just come once to Nehemiah and then it was over. It says specifically that this message came four stinking times. That's a John Brown translation. Four times. You need to be aware of the persistence of the enemy. Don't be naive. I'm not naive to the fact that even after this sermon, you're going to go, you might be really encouraged, but you might go home and just, it all seems like you forgot it. Tomorrow morning, it's gone. Why? Because the enemy wants to attack. Listen, this is part of our, this is part of our calling as Christians. Part of our calling as Christians is to deal with difficulties, specifically 
the, the spiritual warfare that we deal with. This is part of us going from glory to glory, from the glory of knowing Jesus, this side of heaven, to the glory of actually seeing Jesus in heaven. This is part of it. Listen. Peter writes it this way at the end of his little epistle in 1 Peter chapter 5. An epistle all about suffering. Here's what he says. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. Stand firm against him. Be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. So after you have suffered a little while, God will restore, support, and strengthen you, and, you will, and he will place you on a firm foundation. He's saying, listen, it's hard. Peter's saying, it's hard. It's hard to have an enemy on your back trying to come into your home, trying to divide your church, trying to ruin your marriage, trying to drown your children. It is hard to do that. But every Jesus follower around the world goes through this, and God is faithful to every one of his people. Listen, the way the enemy wants to keep us from persevering is by these personal distractions. He wants us to, ourselves to think, okay, you know, I'm just not in a good place. I just can't be around God's people for a while. That really is a lie. No, I'm not saying that taking a, a Sunday off to, to go do something different is, is you, know, you know, always a bad idea. That might, might be a good thing to do, but you know what? This kind of, you know, I just can't be around God's people and I'm just not in a good place. That, that's... It's because you're not in a good place that you need to be around God's people. No, we need to be assured that God wants to do good work in us and through us, and it's important, and we should not grow weary in that well-doing because we have a persistent enemy. Well, then what happens, of course, he, he, he says the same way, answers the same way in verse 4 to these messages from Sambalat and Tobiah and the rest. And so what happens, verse 5 says, Then Sambalat sent his servant to me, as before, the fifth time, with what it says is an open letter in his hand. Now understand that when a correspondence was sent between leader to leader, that correspondence was uh, kind of written on, um, uh, on parchment or possibly sheepskin, and then it was rolled up, placed into a silk bag. That silk bag was then sealed with a bit of wax and endorsed with the signature ring of the authority who sent it. So that, that when you receive that correspondence, it was between you and them. The person who brought it to you with a broken seal, it was on the payment of death. An open letter, on the other hand, was just the scroll kind of rolled up. And so the, the correspondent, the person who's kind of carrying that message, could read it, could tell his friends, could read it out loud to them. It was basically the equivalent of Facebook, social media. And it had the same effect. It was the, 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 what seemed to be the purpose of it was to spread a rumor in an authoritative way. This is what it was. Now, that, that problem of kind of, well, how do we know? How, how would these people know? They, they, they see Sambat Tobiah, these are leaders of the area, saying, here's what's going on, here's the rumors, which we'll talk about what they are in a second. They say, the, the, here's the rumors, but how do they... How do the people who hear that, how do they sort fact from fiction? How do they know? See, it's not just a modern problem, is it? In fact, 3,000 years ago, this is what um, Solomon writes 3,000 years ago. He says, the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. 
It's scary the kind of stuff that I see posted on social media that seems to just kind of believe whatever is said. And I see it from all different angles, all different sides. Someone says something that seems to be, well, gosh, that doesn't seem to be true. So then someone else responds with something that also doesn't seem to be true. Or has zero evidence to it. And people say things on here that goes out there in the cyberspace and spreads all kinds of vicious ideas that just aren't true. This is what's going on with Nehemiah. Nehemiah is being publicly discredited by political leaders in his day. How many of you guys have heard the statistic that half of all Christian marriages end in a divorce? Have you guys heard that statistic? Anybody heard that one? Yeah, some of you guys have. It's false. It's absolutely not true. It might feel true. You might at times in your marriage wish it was true, <laughs> but it's not true. It's false. It's a lie that's been propagated out there by whoever, but we know the enemy of our souls wants it out there, so we think, well, gosh, maybe Christians don't have any advantage to making their marriages work. Listen, we need to recognize that there are a lot of things out there that are bogus, and we need to also recognize, listen, that we live in a day and age where we are being more and more and more marginalized. And the temptation is we're being marginalized is wanting to respond politically. As we as Christian people are being discredited politically, and that temptation to be marginalized, our temptation is to go, oh, we're going to respond politically. But that's not what Nehemiah did. Look at verse 6, what happens? He's not just discredited, he's, he's being falsely accused. In verse 6 and 7, was it say, here's what was the content of the open letter. It says, it was written among the nations, and Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Now, they've been down this road before, haven't they? And Nehemiah's been playing, no, that's not the case. That's not what we're doing. Oh, but that must be what you're doing, they write, because the walls are being rebuilt. Also, they say in verse 7, you've appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying there is a king in Judah. Now, there probably were prophets that were working with Nehemiah to say what God had said about this wall being rebuilt. God's rebuilding his wall as he promised he would. But they're twisting that. Why? Because they want to get him in trouble. They're using this to try to get them to consult. Now, here what they're doing, their accusation really is just a misrepresentation of the facts. And this is something that Christians have always had to go through. And, and I want to say, too, for you who are here today that maybe aren't Christians yet, this is something I would really encourage you to think about, okay? We really want you to know Jesus. More than anything else, we're praying that you'd come to know Jesus. But we want to be clear, coming to know Jesus doesn't make you popular with people. Sometimes it makes you unpopular. In fact, oftentimes, we can be the ones that are accused of doing things wrong. In fact, early, Christi uh, early Christians faced a similar representation of the facts. This is a, a quote from a second century church father named Tertullian. He says, if the Tiber reaches the walls, if the Nile does not rise into the fields, if the sky does not move or the earth does, if there is famine, if there is plague, the cry is at once, the Christians to the lions. Do you understand what he's saying? Any natural disasters must be the Christians' fault. Now, it's not that bad right now in England, but it's getting there. In the West, it's getting there. How should we respond to this? Should we be paranoid? Should we hide in our little holy huddles? 
Should we be active politically? No. We should do what Nehemiah does. In verse 8, it says this, Then he sent, them, uh, sent to them, he sends them a letter. And it, it, we don't know for sure if he sent a private letter or another open letter. It seems that he's sending an open letter, because it says, I sent to him. I mean, a closed letter, excuse me. So he says, I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. He doesn't try to, seem, he seemingly doesn't send another open letter saying, well, here's the reasons why we are justified in what we do. Here's the publicity we want to send out there to counteract what you say. Here's our posts on social media. Now, they don't do that. What they do is this. He writes to them and says, look, what you say is wrong. You're invented in your heart. It's just there's no evidence for this. Because why? He says, because they're trying to make us afraid so that we can we weaken the work and we stop doing what God's called us to do. Therefore, what does he pray in verse 9? Therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Strengthen my hands. Lord, they want me to be weak. It's tempting to be weak. We need you to strengthen my hands. What do we do? When we are, now that we are becoming more and more the object of political intimidation, what should we do? We should pray. We should pray. Do you know why we need to pray? Do you know why we need to choose and prioritize prayer over political action? And I'm not saying don't be involved in politics or don't vote. There's a place for that. But do that as an individual believer. But why should we prioritize prayer over politics? Because listen, because God's opinion of us is far more important than anybody else's. I got really mad at somebody recently because they accused me, or I felt like they were accusing me of being insensitive to their particular um, issue. And I, was, I got really angry because I have a clear conscience that I, I've been over the top sensitive to their particular issue. And they were throwing something in my face because it was politically the correct thing to do. And then I ruined my witness and had to go back and apologize because I got mad. What I should have done is walked away and said, Lord, you know. You know, Lord. You know. And as long as my heart is clear before you that I'm loving the way you want me to love and I'm speaking the truth in love and I'm, and I'm supporting people and honoring people as those made uh, in your image as those for whom Christ died, as long as I know in my heart of hearts that's how I'm treating people, if they still want to accuse me falsely, so be it. That's how I should have responded. Instead of just wanting to do this. And there's another reason why, though, too, this is, and this is really important. It probably affects more what's going on in the United States than it does here, but I think some of these things are creeping in here as well. And that is, listen, we need to make sure that we recognize that God's plan is not going to be accomplished through political means. God's plan is accomplished through his people. Don't get me wrong, God's sovereign over kings as well. God's sovereign over nations. He's doing things nationally as well. But that's not how he's going to bring his kingdom on earth. It's not through political means. It's the mistake that many nations have made. No, he's going to do it through his people. And he's going to do it as Christ comes back. Listen, when Jesus is before Pontius Pilate, what does he say? Jesus, when he's basically, he's already been beaten. He's about to be crucified. Jesus answers Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. We should vote 
We should be involved in things that have to do with social justice. We should have a political voice, but that shouldn't be what we're known for. That is not how we're going to have victory. The enemy wants to distract us with that. He wants us to be either so intimidated we say nothing, or he wants us to be so intimidated that we get angry and we say the wrong thing. We need to be those who are committed to prayer and saying, God, I want to seek you. I want to trust you. This is what Paul tells us, right? Great prayer. If you don't have these verses memorized, might be some good verses to commit to memory. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, right? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's an there's a individual application, but there's a corporate a- application for us. Look at the book of Acts, man. When, when God's people were being radically persecuted, radically persecuted, what did they do? They got on their knees and said, Lord, look at their threats and move in power. Look at their threats. When they were being told, stop preaching Jesus, they said, look at their threats and give us more boldness to speak the truth in love. Not, Lord, would you have a new Caesar come in and rule? But give us your strength. God wants to show himself strong. That's why he chooses the foolish of the world, the weaklings of the world. The thing the enemy wants to use to to keep us from persevering, besides personal distraction, is political intimidation. And we need to persevere and not get sucked into that war. Here's the last thing. In some ways, the most important thing. The way the enemy wants to keep us from persevering Religious deception. What happens next? Verse 10. Afterward, I came to the house of Shimei, the son of whoever his name is, who was, it says in New King James, a secret informer. That's probably a bad translation. It should say who was shut in. The idea, he goes to someone's house because they give the message that they're kind of shut in. Now, we don't know much about this person, but we do know by his ancestry that he is someone who has a bit of spiritual credibility as being a a son of a priest. So he has a priestly credibility. And we see from the context that he's someone who's prophesying. He's speaking the name of God. And it's important that we recognize that this is what's going on because when he says to to Nehemiah, look, we should go into the house, uh, God's house, the temple, we should uh, hide in there because someone's coming to kill you. He's, He's, in a sense, speaking authoritatively in the name of God. Someone's gonna kill you, you need to go hide in the temple. Now, there was a clause that said if in cities of refuge, if somebody was in trouble, they could run into a certain place, they could grab on the horns of the altar, and they couldn't be slain until there was two or three witnesses that could prove they needed to be slain. But it's interesting here, and it's important we recognize that this, what's coming on here, and we're going to see really clear from the context, it is a lie. This is coming from counter, a counterfeit prophet, or actually counterfeit prophets, who have really good credentials. Really good credentials. Hey, just because the majority of those who name or or call themselves God's people, because the majority of people who call themselves God's people say this guy's a good guy, doesn't mean that guy's a good guy. People are credible not because they're popular. They're credible, credible because what they do and teach aligns with the scriptures. 
And what, the, what he's wanting to do here is really seek to discredit Nehemiah through compromise. Notice his two compromises. Hey, come and hide in the temple. And what does Nehemiah say in verse 11? He says, should such a man as I flee? Come and hide. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs 28, 1, that the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Nehemiah says, I don't know anybody trying to kill me other than the guys that are outside the city, so why would I flee into the temple? See, what he's wanting to say is, save your own life. Make sure that you're okay. We're going to talk more about that at the end. But also, in this idea of coming into the temple, Nehemiah says, and who is there such as I? That is, he's not a priest. He is Jewish, but he's not a priest. He can't just casually walk into the holy place. That's for, also forbidden by Scripture. He says, who is there such as I who will go to the temple to save his life? I will not go in. And of course, he recognizes that what's trying to happen is that he's trying to, this guy's trying to trip him up trying to make sure there's going to be an evil report about him. What he's wanting Nehemiah to do, listen, he's wanting Nehemiah to misapply the scripture so that Nehemiah loses his credibility with God's people. That's what he's wanting him to do. Hey, you know that whole scripture that says you can grab on the horn and it'll be safe? Just, just claim that. It'll be fine. Just claim that verse. And Nehemiah's going, no way. I'm not doing that. That does not apply to me in the situation. That's a misapplication of scripture. I will not compromise that way. Because listen to me. Paul, Paul writes this, or I'm sorry, Peter writes this about Paul in 2 Peter chapter 3. Listen to this. Peter says, and remember our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is why God doesn't just wipe all these bad guys out. This is what our beloved brother Paul also, also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him. Speaking of these things in all of his letters, listen, he says, some of his comments are hard to understand. So if you've have a hard time reading Paul, so did Peter, okay? And those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different, just as they do with other parts of Scripture, and this will result in their destruction. Whew. Peter is saying, listen, even when Scriptures are hard to understand, if you are trying to twist those things to make them mean something they're not meant to mean, there's destruction meant for you. Trying to get us to compromise what God has said is very serious business. This is why I often say to you guys, listen, I don't claim to always interpret this Bible the right way. I claim to, by the grace of God, try to make sure I'm finding that right interpretation. And if I'm not sure, I'll say I don't know. But I can tell you for sure this is a right application. Because that's what's happening in Nehemiah's time. These counterfeit prophets are wanting to get him to compromise by twisting the scripture. And he says, I'm not doing it. That is religious deception. You know, I'm less worried about you guys having, in fact, I'm not worried about you guys having relationships, you guys who are Jesus followers now, having relationships with people that are in non-Christian religions. In other words, if you have friends that are Muslims, you should be really good friends with them. You should invest in those friendships. But I do worry with some of you guys and you, you, the kinds of people that you read or the kinds of places that you hang out with or the kinds of stuff that you listen to going, man, is that stuff even biblical? That's what's concerning because this is how the enemy wants to keep you from persevering. It's because you start believing stuff. We can believe stuff that's false and when it's shown as false, you know what we want to do? Just chuck the whole lot away. I listened this week to a 
a seven-minute testimony of a woman named Lisa Gungor. Anybody heard of the band Gungor? A couple years ago, they were one of my favorite bands. Amazing music. It is still amazing music. They are now professing atheists. And one of the things that's happened, she's just wrote a book about this. I haven't read the book. I'm not going to read the book. But one of the things she testifies of is she saw, they saw so many false things in the mega churches they were involved in. So many things, it just caused them to think, well, this can't be right, and this can't be right. So they decided to just chuck the whole thing off. They decided not to persevere. Now, they have their own, they made their own choice. They're accountable to God. But so are the people whose example was so poor, whose teaching was twisting the scripture. Again, listen, I'm not talking about things that we can agree to disagree about. We can't disagree about certain, there's certain areas that we can kind of go, I'm not too sure how this works, it could be this way or that way, worship styles, whatever the case might be, that's fine. I'm talking about things that have to do with who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing, what he said his church can expect. I'm talking about that kind of stuff. So what happens when Nehemiah sees this? It says in verse 14, he prays, My God, remember Tobiah and Sambalat according to, to these their works and the prophetess uh, Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. Do you realize what this is saying in verse 14? It's saying that Nehemiah was facing additional false prophets that we know nothing about. I mean, I think, okay, you already named Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, and there's all these other enemies. And then you have, now you name this woman Noadiah. And then the rest of the prophets. There was a whole group of people who were trying to bring deception into God's people. And Nehemiah was having to deal with this. Now I can imagine, here he is. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. He's a wise man. He's obviously a godly man. He's stirred by what God says his people. He's not a perfect man. We're going to see that more and more as we move on to Nehemiah. But the thing was, he was a godly man. But he wasn't a theological man necessarily. He wasn't trained for this kind of thing necessarily. And so when he's feeling overwhelmed, what does he say? God, you deal with him. <laughs> he goes back to the Lord and he says, Lord, we need your intervention for this. I've wasted a lot of time trying to fix everybody else's theology. <laughs> That's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to make sure that you guys know the God of Scripture. That's my responsibility. It's not other, other groups or other churches that may or may not do that. But we do need to be aware that one of the ways the enemy keeps us from persevering is through religious deception, to get us caught up in stuff that isn't biblical, so we say, check it all aside and give up. I want to close with this scripture in Acts chapter 20. Because what we see with Nehemiah is someone who's taking God at his word. God promised that Jerusalem would be rebuilt, including the walls, and that's what's happening. But he also knows that the, the, the things are serious. They're way above him. He's trusting God for ultimate justice. And this reminds me so much of what Paul said to the elders, the church leaders in Ephesus, after he ministered there and he leaves them to kind of make the, help the church move forward, he, he, he says this, listen to this. 
He's talking about, in, in the context, he's talking about he knows the next step for him is to suffer greatly on his journeys. The Holy Spirit's warned him he's going to suffer greatly and be persecuted in his journeys. And here's what he writes. But none of these things move me. Notice, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Do you realize this work of restoration is simply us testifying to the gospel of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? That God in his grace is changing us from the inside out and one day we're going to be presented faultless before his throne. That we already have a position in Christ where we can approach God that way, but one day practically as well, we're going to stand before him faultless because God is doing that work of restoration. He's applying, by his Holy Spirit, he's applying the gospel of Jesus to our lives. He's doing this. Do you know how you move forward, you persevere, and not just persevere, but persevere with joy? Like Paul writes about here, do you know how you persevere with joy? You don't count your life dear. You don't count your life dear. Lord, it's not my life. It's yours. Do whatever you want to do. Because whatever you want to do leads to restoration. Whatever you want to do is going to be for my good and for the good of your people. That's what causes you to persevere with joy. That's what causes you to resist the enemy and to move forward. Father, we pray that you would build in us this kind of persevering faith. Lord, we face a lot of challenges and difficulties, but help us to press on. And Lord, I pray for anyone who might be here today that's still kind of just checking out this Jesus stuff, and this might be going completely over their heads. But Lord, may they know that Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem persevered in building the wall because they believed your promise. And you call us to persevere in trusting Jesus because you're building us, you're changing us. Thank you so much that we have this great promise of a world where righteousness dwells, of a world where no more pain, sickness, or death will occur, of a world where we will love you and know you and love you as you are and love each other as is right, Lord. One day, soon and very soon, you're coming back to restore all things. And this is what you're calling us to persevere towards. So Lord, help us to resist the personal distractions Help us to pray when we feel that political intimidation, Lord. And help us, Father, to be vigilant against the religious deception that's part of our age. To trust you in the real gospel. Please, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.